You're listening to How to Win Friends and Save the Republic, a podcast from the National Association of Nonpartisan Reformers. I'm your host, Andy Moore. My guest today is Isaac Saul. Isaac was born in Trenton, New Jersey, and grew up in suburban Pennsylvania. He attended Pensbury High School, and it was there that Isaac got his start in journalism, serving as a news anchor and scriptwriter for the high school's local television station. Isaac later attended the University of Pittsburgh, where he majored in nonfiction writing and served as sports editor for the Pitt News. After graduation, Isaac worked at the Huffington Post until 2014, at which time he left uh, and joined with actor Ashton Kutcher and some others to build a positive news outlet called A+. A+, focuses on telling stories that inspire change, stories of heroes and tragedies, and the stories of people who are finding solutions to important problems. I think it's fun that it's sponsored by Chicken Soup for the Soul Entertainment. In 2019, Isaac launched his own startup called Tangle, which is an independent, ad-free, nonpartisan politics newsletter that summarizes the best arguments from the left and the right on the news of the day. Two years later, in 2021, Isaac left a to pursue Tangle full-time. Now, along the way, you may have seen Isaac's byline in the Huffington Post, the New York Daily News, Time Magazine, the Daily Mail, the Forward, and Yahoo. In fact, Yahoo named Isaac as one of the 16 people who shaped the 2016 election. He has traveled widely and written for many international locations, including, and I'll read these in alphabetical order, Canada, China, Colombia, the Dominican Republic, Egypt, Iceland, India, Indonesia, Israel, Italy, Mexico, Puerto Rico, Singapore, and Thailand. Here domestically in the U.S., he's covered a wide gamut of issues, including Um, stories from our two largest states, Alaska Alaska and Texas, and including a a notable effort he had to interview every single sitting U.S. senator to find out on what issues they agree and perhaps what kind of bill could get through this divided Senate. Welcome to the show, Isaac Saul. Thank you so much for having me, Andy. I appreciate it. That was a a nice little trip down memory lane. (laughs) It's always fun to hear about yourself in in another another person's voice, right? Yeah, that's right. Well, Isaac, um, as we were talking before we began recording, uh, I think it's important for those of us who work in electoral reform or democracy reform to remember that, you know, the primary way that most voters engage with politics with democracy is through the media. Uh, And so having journalists like yourself uh, be guests on this show, right? This is a a media format that is involving the media here um, can be really, I think, insightful and hopefully illuminating to, to people who work in democracy reform in understanding the forces kind of behind the media and the people uh, behind the media so that we remember that you know, well, we're all just people, right? And so uh, for you, let's go back to where it began, right? You you were working for uh, the high school paper or high school TV station, right? Um, what made you interested in journalism even at that early age? 
Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, you know, for me, I was always really interested in writing and storytelling. That was kind of like my first love in the education world. And I actually just really benefit from having a great teacher my freshman and sophomore year of college who ran an excellent English class that engaged kids and gave us opportunities to sort of flex our writing and speaking oratory oratory skills as well in a high school setting where you didn't get a ton of opportunities to do that. And one of the ways they did that was we had this high school TV station that was broadcast kind of widely. I think it was something like 50 or 60,000 homes got the TV station in our county. And as part of, you know, a high school class, you could enter the, the staff of the high school TV station, which was run literally just by students and by this teacher. And so one of my roles early on in high school was to write scripts for a nightly news show and sometimes serve as an anchor that was just entirely run by high school students. And, you know, I think at the time I didn't really realize what a cool opportunity it was, but it sort of put me on a path where I became really interested in storytelling and interested in the value of news. And I like that kind of writing. And when I went to college, I actually just sort of envisioned taking it up as a hobby. I actually, I went to the university of Pittsburgh and declared my major my freshman year to be an athletic trainer. And I thought that was kind of going to be my path. I was a big sports junkie and athlete and that seemed like a stable career path, but, uh, kind of towards the end of my freshman year, I realized that the thing that I really cared about at school was writing for the school paper and my English classes I was taking. And I really wasn't enjoying the athletic training stuff that much. So I basically made the switch my sophomore year and just jumped all in on the, on the journalism track. Well, that explains why you were sports editor then, um, when you <laughs> in college. Um, yeah, I think it's, I think in high school, so many of us are encouraged if not urged to try to decide our our path for life at an early age before you really had a chance to experience what that life might look like and uh, and so i think it's real common in college i know i i entered college as a theology major with the intent of going to the ministry and uh, that is not what i do now although i guess one could say that evangelism for democracy reform <laughs> is a similar skill set well, um, along the way, you've covered a, a wide range of topics. I started to try to make a list of all the things that I have seen you write about. Uh, and at the end of the day, it was just everything. Like there wasn't, it wasn't even a particular um, sub genre of, of stuff. It was really a pretty broad range, which I think gives you an interesting perspective, right? It's easy to get um, into the weeds and to write about a particular thing, especially politics, right? As an insider, that gives you deep knowledge, but also I think in some ways um, occlude some of, of the perspective that most people have when they when they in interface with it. But I know that in 2016, you covered that election, that presidential election, pretty closely. And that certainly was, I think, a, a year, an election that was pivotal in shaping the arc of our current political discourse. And I'm sure our listeners remember, but just to recap, 2016, which was only six years ago, was a heavily contentious season, both in the primary and in the general, because it was a, a, you know, open seat. Um, and it culminated with Hillary Clinton winning the popular vote, 
but losing the electoral college and thus the election to Donald Trump. Uh, and, and that really set the stage for not just the, the following four years, but still even, you know, here we are two years into the next president's term. Uh, and it's still, I think, coloring or at least provides a lens through which America views itself, uh, our politics and our democracy. Now, can you maybe share a little bit about what your experience was like uh, during that election? Um, you know, kind of the the angle or the stories you took and any any like, I don't know, lessons you learned or things that we should keep in mind about about politics and about uh, how the media kind of interfaces with politics? Yeah, for sure. I mean, so I think one of the the big reasons why I got some recognition during that election was actually because of a few opinion pieces that I wrote, um, which to your point, you know, throughout my career, I've, I've worn a lot of different hats in the media space. I've I've been on a lot of different beats. I started in sports reporting in college, but my professional career has pretty much entirely been in national politics. And I've covered, you know, a lot of immigration stuff on the border and, um, you know, elections, national politics, state elections, local elections, and climate change, innovation, you know, some economic reporting, though that's not really my strong suit, I don't think. And going into the 2016 election, I sort of had this, I felt like a pretty holistic look at the landscape. And because of where I grew up in Bucks County, Pennsylvania, which is a bellwether county for United States elections, a really good understanding of what was happening on the ground, which was that I was seeing a huge groundswell for former President Trump. And I understood that he was much stronger than a lot of people thought he was. And, uh, you know, I... I was not a supporter of the president's when he was a candidate. I didn't think his presidency went particularly well. I'm not really shy about that. I think everybody has their opinions and it's okay. You know, I think he actually did some things well, and I think he did some things really poorly. And in the 2016 election at that time, in my sort of political evolution, I was kind of like a, I don't know, sort of like a populist left of center libertarian something. I, my political views have never fit cleanly into any box, but it was apparent to me, I thought at the time of the election that Bernie Sanders was most representative of like what a lot of Americans wanted. And I think Trump's election actually in some ways sort of proved that. I think Bernie and Trump were kind of that like, 10 and two o'clock, not 12 and six o'clock. I don't think they were polar opposites of each other. I think they shared a lot of really similar baseline views about the direction they wanted America to go, you know, whether it was bringing jobs back from overseas, manufacturing more at home, taking care of the hollowed out middle class in the Rust Belt. I mean, these were all really important things for them as candidates and railing against the establishment, obviously. And in the middle of the election season, as the primaries came to a close, I revisited an article I'd written that was extremely critical of Hillary Clinton and basically said, you know, after watching all the debates and comparing her record to President Trump's and some of the or candidate Trump's at the time and some of the plans that they had for the country, I felt like she was actually a better choice than I'd initially given her credit for and basically openly moved my position when confronted with, you know, new evidence and kind of the dichotomy of her versus Trump. 
which got a ton of attention and was one of the second or third really big viral articles that I wrote. Uh, Hillary Clinton actually wrote me a very nice letter thanking me for the piece, which I thought was kind of nuts and um, also put me in a very uncomfortable position of being like, you know, as a journalist, you don't want politicians writing you thank you notes. That's not usually what our job is. And um, I certainly wasn't attempting to curry favor with her, but I thought it was interesting nonetheless that she actually saw it and went out of her time to, you know, or someone on her team did and got her to sign a typed out letter to me. Um, and so that was sort of what happened with my writing. And I think why it got a lot of attention going into the election. But, you know, in terms of lessons learned, I think um, it's clear to me that there's a lot of cynicism in America. I mean, that to me, that was the fundamental takeaway was that, you know, Americans weren't sending Donald Trump and my friends and family and loved ones who vote for him and still support him. They're not sending him there because they think he's like a super competent intellectual with foreign policy experience who knows how to govern and pass legislation. They're, they're sending him there because they don't like the status quo and they want somebody to drop a grenade in it. And that's what he promised to do. And the the bubble that the media was in in 2016, which was a very real bubble, you know, in, in their reporting basically panned out by them not seeing him coming, plain and simple, by them not having any understanding of why Americans would support somebody who wanted to blow up that status quo. And, you know, I, I think a lot of it is, you know, a lot of people have tied that to journalists being members of the elite and going to these fine institutions and, you know, all these things that I don't think are true. I think journalists, for the most part, 99% of them are working class Americans who get paid crappy wages and have low job security and are in touch with a lot of things in America. But um, in this case, the bubble they were in was they were all just talking to each other, you know, and they were isolated in urban, mostly urban enclaves because local news has been hollowed out. Most of our national media centers, power centers are all in major cities like Los Angeles, New York City, Chicago, Miami, Austin. Um, and because of that, they sort of miss the divide between, you know, the new political divide, which is really between urban America and rural, exurban, suburban America. And, you know, there were a lot of stories in 2016, but I think that was a big one. And I think I benefit greatly from having the experience of growing up in sort of a typical suburban county in Pennsylvania, battleground state, where it was really, really clear to me throughout the election that Trump had a lot of traction and that there were a lot of people who had just really totally had it, you know, after Obama's eight years in office that were supposed to be transformational transformational change that you know didn't really pan out in a lot of the ways he promised and he was kind of like the last great hope for a lot of people i think and so um you know it was a scary really divisive time and i think there's a lot to take away from it but th that's sort of kind of the top level stuff that i saw sure yeah um yeah i i chuckle at, at you know journalists that i know that I've probably received both, uh, you know, thank you notes as well as hate mail from from <laughs> politicians they've covered, and um, maybe they've they've got a wall of of mementos there. Um, well, I I think even you sharing your experience helps highlight a little bit about how Tangle came to be, 
um, you know, given your kind of breadth of experience in journalism uh, and certainly that very personal experience during the, the 2016 election. So maybe tell us a little bit about about that process and, and the, the thoughts you had and that led to you to start this newsletter. Yeah, for sure. So, um, you know, my, my first job in media was at the Huffington Post and I did not start working for the Huffington Post because I was a raging left-wing liberal. I started working for them because they offered me a job and jobs are really hard to get when you have an English writing degree with a journalism track. And, you know, I applied to like 50 news outlets and they hired me and it was a great gig. They were at the time in 2014 um, really well read. They had a huge audience. They were dominating on social. So my writing got seen. And despite the fact that I think a lot of people who work there and the editorial slant of the Huffington Post is obviously left wing, uh, they let me write what I wanted and they let me publish a lot of stuff that um, I cared about. And what happened after I left the Huffington Post was sort of the beginning of the genesis of Tangle, which was that I learned pretty quickly that no matter where I was publishing writing, whether it was in conservative magazines like the Independent Journal Review, who I wrote for after I left, people always pegged me for having a past at the Huffington Post. And regardless of what I was writing, the the point I was making was going to be received by conservatives or liberals based solely on where it was being published. So I could make the same argument in the New York Post as I was in the Huffington Post. And unless it was a super overtly partisan take, it was going to be soundly rejected by liberals if it was published in the New York Post and by conservatives if it was published in the Huffington Post, just because the, that banner head was there. And it, it just became obvious to me that people were just reading news that was reinforcing their own views. And I had this realization around the same time that I think a lot of other people started to, you know, eight, 10 years ago, which was just... Facebook and Twitter and these social media platforms were just creating echo chambers that people were living in. And now we all know this is fact. I mean, it's like everybody understands this basically. But back then it was sort of like we were just starting to see all the fruits of that reality come to bear. And um, and so I knew for a long time that I wanted to kind of create a news platform that conservatives and liberals could both read and trust and I went and worked for A Plus, this company that did kind of positive news. I mean, my my general sense of of what we did was I, I like to call it like solutions journalism, which was that we highlighted the people who were fixing things rather than the people who were breaking things. And that took a lot of different forms on the political beat. It was something that was really hard to do, but forced kind of creative storytelling, I think. And that was kind of my first getting my my feet wet in something where I was like, it feels good to write this kind of stuff. It feels like we're doing something good. We're offering something new that not a lot of other places are doing. You know, there was like Upworthy and news outlets like that, but they were doing cat videos and stuff. And we felt like we were doing real journalism about solving big issues. And uh, we got bought out and Chicken Soup for the Soul bought us and they started kind of turning us into a video organization and my passion was always writing. And so I kind of started building this thing tangle on the side, which is 
essentially a political newsletter where I tell you what the big main story of the day is, what the debate is happening. Uh, we're recording this on Monday, March 7th. So today my story was about whether the United States should issue a no-fly zone and how we can become energy independent from Russia in, in response to the Ukraine war. And so then I summarize kind of the, the top best, most compelling arguments I can find from conservatives and the top best, most compelling arguments I can find from liberals. I tell you where there's some agreement between the two sides, and then I share my take on the issue. And this format is kind of our special sauce. It's how we create basically every newsletter Monday through Thursday. And then on Fridays, we have kind of premium subscriber only content that's deep dives on certain issues or personal essays that I write or interviews with people in the political world, those kinds of things, reader requested comment or reader requested content. And the response has just been really tremendous. I mean, I have an audience of people who are left, right, everything in between diehard Trump supporters who love and read our newsletter, diehard Joe Biden supporters who love and read our newsletter and I think we're, you know, really fulfilling our goal of kind of bringing these two audiences under one roof. And the way we're doing it is by being very transparent and explicit about what's opinion and what's not about what the left is saying and what the right is saying. And when I write my take, which is like a mini editorial in every newsletter, I'm very clear that this is my opinion. I'm not trying to convince you anyway. I'm just, you know, it's my newsletter and I'm sharing my thoughts about the prevailing arguments that are out there on an issue and you can take it or leave it. You can write in and critique my take and I'll share your criticism in the newsletter and uh, all sorts of other kind of reader engagement like that. And it's clear that there's a big thirst for it. I think um, Americans are really tired of being angry all the time. They're tired of hating people who have different political views in them. A lot of liberals read Tangle because they want to understand how somebody could vote for Trump. A lot of conservatives read Tangle because they don't trust the mainstream media and they also want to see their views represented in a news source, which they don't feel like happens when they watch CNN or New York Times. Uh, and so, you know, I think the reasons people come and go are different, but it's clear that there's a, a real yearning for this kind of media. And I'm really proud of, of what we built. And I think it's a, it's a news platform that both informs you, but also gets you out of the bubble that we're all inevitably living in the, the kind of self curated social media bubble. And a lot of us who just watch news that doesn't really challenge our own views or perspectives. Yeah. I know. <clears throat> I know one of my friends that is a Tangle subscriber said that the reason they like it is that uh, it it contains you know direct quotes from both sides, right? They're kind of curated um, in there, and then usually at the end you kind of share your perspective on it, but you don't try to say like, "Here's my perspective, which is the truth." Like in between the two, right? You're not. You're kind of saying. Here's what they say. Here's what they say. Here's what I think. And uh, and there's a bit of a like a fresh personal take on it, right? That it is, it is distinctly Isaac's voice, not not purporting to be like the the centrist voice or the distilled correct voice for whatever that could possibly be, right? Uh, and I think that there's not necessarily anything 
wrong with that other approach. I mean, there's some other uh, sites like All Sides that does a, a good job of trying to also present both sides and maybe kind of score, you know, the the leanings of articles that are already out there so that readers are more informed about where they fall. Um, and I like I like what Tangled is doing to to um, to kind of present those in a way that readers are able to to hear, to listen and to make up their own mind. And then it's not really like a back and forth conversation with you, but to hear perspectives from someone else who has uh, a varied experience that kind of feeds into this. And it's not like you're in the, the, what I've read. It's not like your take is heavily leaning any direction of like, well, these guys are right. Right. It's like, here's, here's what it, I'm weighing as I, as I read and curate and write about this. Um, you know, here's where the stories makes sense. Here's where the holes are. And I think that is important too, right? Because what we've seen over the last several years is that, um, I'm not trying to be critical, but I think in some cases, the, you know, the, the both sidesism can, can try to be presented as equally weighted when it's not, or it shouldn't be right. Like just because two, two sides have different perspectives doesn't mean that they each carry the same amount of water kind of deal and so i think there's help there's a i think what you're doing makes uh, avoids that somewhat yeah i mean i i just to respond to some of that i think it's really critical i mean i am not a centrist i think maybe i'm i'm politically moderate i think really the the truth is that i you know i'm incongruent my my views differ depending on the issue which i think is true for most americans you know you talk about free speech i probably align much more with kind of the right wing culture of free speech that exists today in america you talk about healthcare i align much more with the left wing view on what we should do about healthcare and and i'm not trying to hide that when i write in my newsletter and you know i'm witnessing now a really interesting phenomenon which is there's this response to the partisanship that's happening, which I think is good that, that a lot of people are trying to either carve out a centrist position or just generally approach the two parties, the duopoly in like this really heterodox way. Uh, I, there's an old joke. I can't remember where I heard it about, you know, um, liberals want to build a bridge across the lake. Republicans say that there's no funding for it and centrists build a bridge halfway across the lake and it's just like, you know, th that that ideology to just try and be a centrist is actually an ideology of of its own that can be really counterproductive and destructive, I think. And the same goes for sort of the heterodox ideology that exists today. Uh, we just witnessed this play out in real time with the war in Ukraine. A lot of really popular heterodox writers I have no interest in naming names, but they're all independent people who have left mainstream news outlets and created their own audiences almost unanimously said that there was no way Putin was going to invade. This was all just the American, you know, war people drumming up war with Russia. It was all fear mongering and they were wrong. They totally got it 100 percent wrong, despite all the things being obvious. I mean, I was been writing about this issue for months and it was very clear to me that Putin was planning to invade. He put 150,000 soldiers on the border and was 
running military exercises for months. I mean, there was nothing ambiguous about it in retrospect. But because these people are committed to this heterodox ideology, they couldn't possibly believe that maybe the military American intelligence apparatus was getting something right because we screwed up the Middle East so badly. And so I think there's danger to that, to, to having that centrist heterodox ideology. And so what I try to do is just be honest about how I feel, just tell people straight up how I view the arguments and whether I think, you know, they're strong or not, what kind of weaknesses are there. And sometimes I see both the arguments both sides are making and neither of them make a lot of sense to me. And I share that perspective too. I mean, that again, just talking contemporary because it's relevant that happened today. You know, I'm, I think the consensus on both sides right now is that we shouldn't have a no fly zone in Russia and or in Ukraine because Russia would respond by starting World War III and, you know, nuking everybody in Europe or something. And I basically wrote today that I actually don't know if I agree with that sentiment. I don't know that I, I think we should be skeptical of that position, that consensus that exists on the right and the left, because I could see a lot of worlds where we institute a no fly zone in Ukraine and Putin were responds by coming to the negotiating table in a weaker position than he is right now with us sitting on our hands. Now, I'm not advocating for a no-fly zone because I think it's too risky, but I'm just skeptical of that kind of mainstream consensus. And so that's what I try to do in the newsletter is just look at the arguments that are out there and be honest about my position without sort of just, you know, I'm not trying to be a centrist on every issue. Yeah. When I was in college, I had a philosophy professor that said that his job was not to convince us of anything. His job was to teach us how to think, right? And how to how to um, receive information and kind of digest it and using, you know, various tests of reason or logic or the, the tools at their disposal in philosophy. Um, and I think it sounds like a similar approach is what you're taking, right? That you're trying to present information and help readers to kind of form their own opinions about it without without it being um, presented in such a way that's like clearly leading them towards a particular perspective on it. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back after a word from some of our sponsors. If you're interested in learning how to win friends and save the Republic, then you should know about Reformers Unite, a new virtual networking event hosted by Nanner, the National Association of Nonpartisan Reformers. Each month, Nanner sets aside a couple of hours solely dedicated to helping our members share updates about their organizations and to build deeper connections between Nanner members throughout the country. Reformers Unite happens on Fridays and is only available to Nanner members. So get on over to nonpartisanreformers.org and become a member today. Are you tired of the politics of division and deadlock? Do you want to do something about it, but you don't know where to start? CitizenConnect.us is your way to learn about and engage with over 400 organizations who are dedicated to helping Americans right, left, and center work together to heal our democracy. Find the organization or event that speaks to you and help us get back to making our great nation work, because it only works when we work together. Learn more at CitizenConnect.us. All right, and now back to the show. Well, as we kind of wind down here, I, I wanted to highlight something that I think is uh, really important. 
in your column on March 1st on Tangle, you had a, a reader wrote in and uh, with a comment and a question about how writing about all of these high stakes issues like politics and pandemics and war must be a lot. It can be a lot for anybody and someone whose job is to consume media and to, and then, you know, um, formulate it and write about it and just live in it day in and day out can be a source of a lot of significant anxiety. I know a lot of people working in, you know, democracy reform, I think feel a similar talking about it, but uh, yeah, I mean, I am a national politics reporter. So the last six years of my life from 2016 until now have been totally bonkers and nonstop and 24 seven news consumption. And uh, a few years ago, probably about three or four years ago, I started to see some legitimate physical manifestations of that stress and anxiety. Uh, I started getting heart palpitations, which are sort of involuntary contractions of the heart that are really annoying and would keep me up through the night because it was so uncomfortable. I noticed I'd get kind of face twitches in my cheek or my eye. Uh, I burned through some goodwill with my wife, with friends, with family members by kind of making no space for my personal life outside of the news. And I had kind of like a come to Jesus moment a couple of years ago where it was like, oh, this is, you know, this has kind of gone too far and I need to figure out how to fix this and address it. Um, and so I started taking some steps that were like required, I think, a ton of discipline, but I think are also really doable for a lot of people uh, in order to fight back on the stress and manage the anxiety better. Um, and I talked about that in the newsletter. So some of the things that I do now that are part of my daily practice are things like, I never bring my cell phone into my bedroom. I stop reading or watching the news at a specific time every day. Usually during the week, it's about six o'clock, maybe 6.30 PM. So I go home and have, you know, a three full three or four hours totally away from the news. Um, I absolutely get seven or eight hours of sleep every night, no matter what I'm like, that's probably the biggest thing I'm super disciplined about. Um, I take, 24 hours off from the news every Friday night. I'm a Jew. So I sort of do this as a kind of pseudo observance of Shabbat. I'm not kosher or super religious, but I do not go on social media and I don't talk about politics really, or watch any political news or consume any kind of political content from Friday night until Saturday night, oftentimes until Sunday morning. Uh, when I wake up in the morning, I try and read something that's not about politics or not the news first thing in the morning. I make an effort to see natural light before I look at my phone or my computer. So I kind of give myself, you know, 15 or 20 minutes to get up and walk around the house and look outside into my tiny little backyard in Brooklyn and to make some coffee and maybe pick up a book and read some real paper text first before jumping into my phone and the electronics and that kind of thing, uh, express a lot of gratitude, pray for the world, things like that. And, um, yeah, it's been a really long kind of grind for me, but just recently in the last couple of months, I actually got off the, I weaned myself off the, the medication that I was on for my heart palpitations. 
I've seen a huge improvement in my sleep, in just my mental state, my stress levels, my anxiety levels. Um, Also, I meditate and practice some breathing exercises now on a pretty regular basis, which is definitely a big one, should probably be one of the ones that I've put in bold print. And all of those things have really, really helped me. And um, I have beaten, quote unquote, beaten the, the kind of physical ailments that were, I think, manifestations of that stressing anxiety. And I've repaired a lot of the relationships I did damage to. And um, it's been hugely rewarding for me to do that. And most importantly, I think my work has actually gotten better. I think I'm, I, I'm not, I'm not like leaving something on the table by taking that time off or giving myself vacations or taking breaks from the news. My, my thinking is clearer. My writing's better. My productivity's higher. Uh, and you know, it took a lot of discipline and took a lot of work, but it panned out really well and, um, it worked for me. And I think, you know, any one of those things is like a good practice, but if you're kind of facing that sort of stress and anxiety, there's a lot of stuff in there that, you know, I did because other people suggested it to me. And because, you know, I talked to my therapist about it and got advice on how to manage stress and those sorts of things. And so, um, you know, it might work for you. And I think it's a worthwhile endeavor to manage that stress. I think being, you know, for, for your audience more relevantly, and I said this in the, in the piece, I think being an engaged, caring citizen who feels, you know, a lot of obligation in their civic duty is a marathon and not a sprint. And if you want to maintain that engagement and be productive in your engagement and, you know, restoring democracy. If that's your call to action, you need to take care of yourself because otherwise, you know, it won't last and you won't last. And so uh, that was kind of my realization and my, my new path. And it's been, yeah, it's been really great. And I feel really good about where I'm at now. Yeah. Well, I think that's, I think that's super powerful. And, and I really appreciate you sharing that um, with us here. I burnout uh, as a, as a, not just an abstract idea, but as a real issue that I think many of us have suffered with over the last couple of years uh, has been coming up a lot in conversations and meetings I've had over the last few weeks, a few months. And in fact, listeners, uh, as a bit of a preview, uh, starting next month in April, we're going to be starting a a six-part leadership masterclass. And one of the sessions that will be in June is about how to manage burnout for you and your team. I'm um, really excited about that. We will be sending that out probably uh, this month with our newsletter. So if you don't already subscribe to our newsletter and somehow found our podcast without that, <laughs> please go to our website, nonpartisanreformers.org and, uh, and sign up for that so you can uh, be top of the list. Isaac, thank you so much for being here with us today. Yeah, thanks for having me, Andy. I appreciate it. My guest today has been Isaac Saul, reporter and founder of the independent nonpartisan political newsletter, Tangle. You can sign up for Tangle at retangle.com. Follow them on social media everywhere at Tangled News and listen to their podcast at anchor.fm slash Tangled News. You can also follow Isaac himself as a person on Twitter at Ike underscore Saul. Thanks for listening to How to Win Friends and Save the Republic. This podcast is a program of the National Association of Nonpartisan Reformers. For more information about our organization and how you can join, please visit our website at nonpartisanreformers.org.
Thank you.